The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. I'm going to treat you guys like I do the ladies' vision. All right, ladies, let's get going here. <laughs> and gentlemen. All right. I tell you what, you got to be a little crazy to do what I do. So if I sound crazy to you, it's because I am. And I don't, you know, I just don't try to hide it anymore. But you got to be a little crazy. You do. You have to be a little crazy. Maybe I'm a little more than a little, but, you know. All right. Let's get started with the dangers of self-help philosophies. Boy, if I were ever trying to make friends, this would not be a workshop I would want to teach. But I was asked to do this actually a couple places. Brazil. I uh, got a busy schedule in July. I'm going to be in Birmingham again and uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Crawfordsville, Indiana. And then I'm flying. I do a conference in Crawfordsville and then fly. They're going to drive me to the airport, fly to Brazil. And they wanted this workshop. And then these guys here wanted this workshop. So this is one that, you know, people... People have gotten up and walked out, thrown their books down, you know, and I mean, it's, it's been, uh, it's always hurt, it hurts my wife's feelings, you know, but um, for me, it's just part, part of it. People really hold on to these things that we're going to talk about here. They really do. So, dangers of self-help philosophies, Mark Shaw is my name. I almost didn't want to say my name because most people won't uh, like what I have to say here. Uh, but let me do an intro, a warning. It's a sensitive subject, and I'm not purposely trying to offend anyone. All right? It's not my purpose. If you have a problem, come see me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. I know there are people who are very much proponents of what I'm getting ready to talk about. And then, you know, I'm simply presenting biblical truths and asking the Holy Spirit to do his work in hearts. Now, maybe some of you already think like I do on this, um, and I hope that if you do, you do because of conviction of biblical truth. Then uh, AA believes alcoholism is a spiritual problem. Now, think about that for a minute. We believe it's a spiritual problem, too, in the church world. So we both agree that it's a spiritual problem, but where I would differ is that not any God will do. Because their goal is sobriety. My goal is walking with Jesus, serving Jesus, loving Jesus, and, and the one true God. That's why I say one true God a lot. But they believe it's a spiritual problem. Isn't that interesting? So I think we have open doors as a church to help, But a lot of people in AA would say that you people out here who go to church, me, you people, you're earth people, and they are spiritual people. That's what they would say. I don't know if you've ever heard them say that. I've gone to AA meetings. I've had addiction issues in my past, which drew me into this. Um, and so they would say, you're earth people, you're like Pharisees to them. 
because you're teaching a bunch of rules and regulation and church and they are spiritual people who believe in a spirituality, new, kind of a new agey kind of thing. So yeah, so they don't have a real high opinion of churchgoers. And really AA is a supplemental church to them. It's a, it's a spiritual fellowship. And it has doctrine. Then uh, fourth warning, we're off to a great start. The church can learn from some of the methods of these programs because they have some really good ideas and methods but the church cannot embrace some of the teachings, the false doctrines that I believe do violence to the gospel and point people away from Christ rather than to Christ. So that's, that's the concern that I have. <clears throat> okay, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. If you're counseling in the flesh and trying to wage war in the flesh, Quit counseling, because you're, you're not doing any good. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, that's the power we want to tap into. Not our little BB gun or, or a way to, you know, shoot somebody. We want God to bring out the bazooka weapon, you know. The Holy Spirit really changed the heart. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's our mission, taking thoughts captive, tearing down lies, replacing them with truth. And the way we do that first in this workshop, talking about the dangers of self-help philosophies, my name is Ed Welch. <laughs> If you're angry, email edwelch at edwelch.com. I don't know. Um, <laughs> sorry, Ed. Uh, words matter, all right? First of all, words matter. Words are signs. They're signs that point in a direction and in a clear direction. They either point to Christ as the solution or they point away from him to a medical man-made so-called disease or spiritual solution. So words point, they're like signposts. <clears throat> if I were driving right now to Disneyland, which I think is north of here, um, geography is maybe not my strong suit, but if I'm driving to Disneyland, I'm looking for signs to point me toward Anaheim. California, wherever Disneyland is, right? And they're going to point me. And then other signs are going to point me the other way. And our words that we choose to use point in a direction. And they're going to point your counselee. That's why, and I said this, and I apologize to those of you who've been in a couple of my workshops, because I've probably said it twice. But a dirty word of vision of hope, a curse word, I mean, this is, a, this is a curse word, a vision of hope. Uh, it, well, it's actually two words. Panic attack. That's like saying a bad word. Because people say, I'm having a panic attack, as though this thing is attacking them, and they don't have any power, any ability. It's just attacking me, and I, I can't, I'm not dealing with it. Well, 
The truth is they're thinking fearful thoughts and they're allowing themselves to continue to think that way. They're beginning to have an emotional response, a physiological response to that thought pattern of fear and they are responding in a way that creates panic, creates shortness of breath, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so it is a panic attack in that way, but they use it as though it's just coming on them and they're innocent bystanders, you know? It's just attacked me, and that's not true. They're thinking thoughts, just like people who file for divorce and say they fell out of love. Well, they fell in love by saying, oh, he's so sweet. He just calls me on the phone. And then we go out and he opens the door for me because he's from the South and that's what Southerners do. He's just so cute, you know. She's telling herself lots of loving things. He's doing the same thing. But now, when they come see me for marriage counseling, they're 20 minutes away from divorce because they've been thinking unlovely, unloving thoughts, hateful thoughts, angry thoughts about each other. And so they're not falling out of love passively as though it just happens. They're thinking hateful thoughts and really um, murderous thoughts. So don't let people use words that point away from their responsibility. Help them to see that they're responsible, but the answer is Christ. The great thing about owning your sin is that there is a solution and it's in Christ. <clears throat> okay. All Christians are fluent in two languages. Did you know that? How many of you speak more than one language? Raise your hand. How many? We got one, two, three. What are some languages you speak? Southern. Southern. I heard that. <laughs> That's our Auburn face. He's back. He's going to get me now. What, what back there? What do you guys speak? Huh? Spanish? Uh, oh. Some Chinese, Ukrainian, anybody can beat that? I heard Spanish. Muy bien, huh? Japanese, so oh, that's good. French, woo. German. Any others? This is fun. I should involve you guys more often. I'm a, oh, sign, ASL, yes. Do a little sign language for us, could you? Yeah. <laughs> One of my best friends is a deaf pastor in Kentucky, and uh, Kevin Hamilton. And uh, we used to go and do some training. We did the whole church, biblical counseling, the kids and the adults. Most of the kids were uh, um, CODAs, ch children of deaf adults. They were CODAs, and their parents were deaf. So we had someone do ASL and would teach biblical counseling. Then we'd break up and we'd do some activities and the kids would participate. It was really fun. Really a fun group. Well, yeah, so languages, you know, I, I barely speak English. So I'm like, you know, not even one language. I'm like a half. But for those of you who speak all these languages, I mean, I've always been amazed at that. I just never had a knack. I've taken Spanish. My wife said the other day, because I butchered a Spanish phrase, you know, real, real poor, real I mean, just butchered it. And she said, how long did you take Spanish? And I said, well, two, three, three and a half years. But I just, I, I don't know. I don't have a, lack for lang, lang, a knack for languages unless I'm at Taco Bell. And then, you know, my Spanish comes in handy there. But 
Uh, all Christians are fluent in at least two languages. See, that's a, that's a blessing for someone like me. And 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 16 tells us about that. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Amen. Isn't that great? We can understand what God freely gives us. And then verse 13 is underlined. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So in other words, there are human wisdom words, and there are spirit wisdom words. Two languages. Then it goes on to say the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the Bible. We have the mind of Christ that the Holy Spirit enables us to understand and then not only just know it, but then to do it, to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there's two types of words. There's human wisdom words and there's spiritual wisdom words. And you want to be careful to use spiritual wisdom words and teach biblical truth. Now let's just play a game because I know that's why you're all here to play a game. Worldly words versus biblical words. What's in a name? You know, the world calls it an affair, but it's really adultery, right? Yeah. So instead of an affair, it's called adultery. Now, adultery has more teeth, doesn't it? it? It bites a little bit more. Now, the world calls this problem kleptomania, or you're a kleptomaniac. So what is it in biblical words? Thief, good. So we'll click that one. Thief, it's so easy. This is just an A-plus class right here. Easy. Uh, thief, you know, kleptomaniac means, makes it sound like I can't help it. Maybe I'm a victim. Maybe it's your fault that I'm a kleptomaniac. It's certainly my parents' fault. I hope they're watching right now. Um, <clears throat> it's them. It can't be me. I got a lot of excuses. I don't know about you. Manipulation is better described as deceit. Deceitful. They're being deceitful. They're trying to trick you, deceive you. You know, manipulation is bad, but we don't think of it as on the level of sin. That's why, again, that's a bad word of vision of hope. I want to use the word deceit and lying. That's what we want to call it. Manipulation just softens it just a little bit. And maybe it does it for you, but around our house, at Vision of Hope house, it does. Then alcoholic, what's a better word for that? Drunkard. That's the word Jesus used several times in Scripture. In Matthew and Luke, he talked about drunkenness and drunkard. He didn't call it a disease. Amazing. I guess he hadn't heard of uh, Bill Wilson yet, um, or Dr. Bob. Um, uh, that's an eternal joke because he would have known that, you know. Anyway, all right. I'll work, I'll work on my material. Then addiction is uh, idolatry or enslavement, all right? I have to laugh through this because this is really painful for me to, to do. You know, you know, I used to believe these lies. 
So I'm sitting here as somebody who used to believe this. So I, I have a lot of compassion for people who believe in all this stuff that we're getting ready to talk about. Now, words matter, and I want to share this. The world thinks of it as compulsive. You know, addiction fits in the OCD category of compulsiveness, but it's really habitual. And habits are in our thoughts, our words, and our actions, but uh, the big deal is there are four characteristics of habits. They're automatic, unconscious, skillful, and comfortable. Automatic, unconscious, skillful, and comfortable. I have a little daughter right now. I have one with me on this trip, but I have one little daughter at home. She just turned 16, so guess what habit she's wanting to learn? And the reason I have gray hair is she wants to learn to drive. Yeah. Can you imagine the audacity? You know, at 16. I mean, wow. So she wants to learn to drive. And God bless her. She's learning. And, you know, she scares me to death. She's a very focused little individual. So we got to get her to pan out. There's other cars and people on the road. You know, right here. Pan out, sweetie. Look out. But, um, you know, she's 16. And really, the habits that she's creating now in her driving, they're going to follow her when she's 66 years old, 50 years later, right? If she doesn't learn right habits right now, she's learning this new skill, she's going to have bad habits when she's 66. Of course, I'll be dead by then, let's hope. But, um, you know, she'll be, she'll be blaming me, you know, for how I taught her to drive or what I didn't do. And I don't blame her. I'll be dead at that point. But um, the habits are really important to learn because they're automatic. They're unconscious, skillful, and comfortable, according to that's Dr. J. Adams. Uh, and then disease versus sin nature. The flesh is our sin nature. The disease is just a theory. They make it law. They make it sound like it is a disease, but it's really a theory. There's not any proof out there. I even have a secular psychiatrist that I quote that basically says they did genetic studies on twins who have the same genes, same set of genes, and they were statistically more likely, if one twin was an alcoholic, it was statistically likely that the other twin was not an alcoholic. Same genes, same upbringing, same environment, nurturing. So same nature and same nurture. And he, and he's not even a Christian is why I quote him, but he talks about how it's not a disease. It's not a genetic disorder. The Bible never calls it a disease. Jesus called it drunkenness. And then the Bible tells us to take personal responsibility. We've already covered that multiple, multiple times, Proverbs 23, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a sin nature problem. It's my flesh. It's my heart. And in the next workshop tonight, I really love doing that one. I work on three basic heart issues that are in all of y'all. All of y'all. You've said that. It's in all of y'all. It's in me. These three basic heart issues, and I think when we get through that, you'll really have a sense of uh, some ways to, to counsel people who struggle with addiction. 
So sin nature problem and then recovery versus transformation. Now I have friends who love the word recovery uh, and, and, I, and I don't hate it. I mean, I'll tell you, um, if you have surgery, there's two rooms they can wheel you out of after surgery. Did you know that? Two rooms? One is the recovery room. That's a nice room to go into compared to the other room. The other room is the morgue, right? So we want to be rolled into the recovery room after surgery rather than into the death room. So I like the word recovery. It means to regain or recapture your old self, get your old life back is what CR says. But really there's a better word that you should use in biblical counseling I've been trying to popularize this word for years. It's transformation. I'm starting to hear it on the radio and even uh, secular people are talking about it. But a transformation means to change in character or condition. Think about that. Changing in character or condition, it's a conversion. You were a caterpillar crawling around and then you're now a butterfly who can fly. And they're carried about really by the wind, which represented the Holy Spirit. And so I love that picture of metamorphosis, converted from a caterpillar, dead in my trespasses, lost in my sin, converted into a butterfly, and now carried along by the Holy Spirit, by the wind. So we're new creations in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, and, and that's what we need to be promoting, not recovery Recovery is recapturing your old self. I don't want to be the old Mark. I want to be like Jesus. That's transformation. You know, we wouldn't say Jesus is less prideful than the rest of us, would we? We would say Jesus is humble. He's a new, he, he's something different than us. So the goal isn't for Mark to be less, less prideful today than I was yesterday. The goal is for me to be something new, which is for me to be humble. You see the difference there? The put on is humility. The put off is just, all right, I want to be less prideful. That's a good goal. But I want to be humble. I want to be something different than I was. And that's important in biblical counseling. You've got to paint that picture. Your counselees are never going to be motivated by stop drinking, stop drinking, stop drinking, be less prideful, be less prideful than you were yesterday, be your old self. That's not motivating. You want to motivate them with become like Christ. And you, and you can be. I mean, you won't be 100% probably. I mean, I am, but not everybody can be like me, right? But you can't. That's a joke. Relax. I mean, some of you are like, is he serious? <laughs> I mean, my wife's not here to tell you. My daughter's, you know, off with the Moles family. Do you know Chris Moles? Have you guys heard him? You can pray for my daughter. She's with that family right now. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. He did a nice workshop. <laughs> Chris is so funny, isn't he? Oh, anyway, I wish I was funny. Um, <laughs> the goal is to be humble. Something different than pride. So the put off and the put on looks very different. It's a different animal. Now let's just look at, oh, there's 2 Corinthians 5.17 for you and Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now let's analyze Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh boy, what fun. 
Oh boy, what is AA? Well, it's a spiritual fellowship, spiritual program. So they would not call themselves a religion. Uh, They would not call themselves a lot of things that maybe I would call them. But they are a fellowship who share experience, strength, and hope. So you hear people always say, well, that's my experience. That's, you know, that's been my experience. That's what they say. Uh, And they share with each other to solve a common problem, which is alcoholism, and to help other people recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. That's all that's required. So think about it in a good way. It's a place where you can go and not feel shame. You know, Ed talked about that. Well, AA is a great place because everybody in that room is there for the same reason. So it's very welcoming and inviting in that sense. But the church ought to be that way too, right? It ought to be a place where we come in and we confess our sin. I mean, if we're truly forgiven, then why can't we confess that right now uh, we really want sweet tea? Oh, wait, was that, was that, that was my Auburn joke there. Um, but, you know, why can't we confess that in the local church? Why do we hide our sin? Even as believers, it's shameful to do so. And so that's what AA provides, a fellowship that is shame-free. Boy, I try to get this thing to stay, and it just won't stay. There we go. Now, Bill Wilson, I don't know if you know about him. Is it in your notes The Bill Wilson never professed to be a Christian? He had a long-term adulterous relationship, even left money to her in his will. Uh, Participated in seances, believed he had a... He spoke to a 15th century monk in his spook room, Boniface. Uh, He did a lot of Ouija board stuff. Claimed in his autobiography that he wrote the 12 and 12 book by channeling Boniface. The, the AA literature, there's several books. There's the big book and there's the, you know, 12, the uh, promises. And, and uh, then he, Bill has, you know, there's just a lot of AA res, um, resources that, you know, you want to stay away from. Uh, <laughs> read Ed Welch's book instead. But um, they, that, this is what he believed, and he experimented with LSD at the end of his life. I guess one spiritual awakening wasn't enough. He needed another one. And so he's looking for, uh, he was a, a, spirit, a spiritist. I mean, he, he, this is not a guy that we should trust above, and above the Apostle Paul, even if we're just looking at people, but above the Word of God. <clears throat> And so people always tell me, well, AA has spiritual roots. Oh, I'm not clicking very well here. AA has spiritual roots. And, um, and Dr. Bob was a Christian. Uh, you know, and, and I, I try not to hammer him too much, but I mean, I just, I, I just want you to know that you have to be careful of, of what is labeled Christian and what truly is biblical, Right? And we have that battle going on today with biblical counseling. People are out there saying they're biblical counselors and they're really not full of truth and full of grace. Uh, So anyway, that's, those are some concerns. But uh, those are the people that started it, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. And again, Bill Wilson never claimed to be a Christian, never claimed to be, never professed to be, and was involved in a lot of uh, weird stuff. 
even the LSD, that you can go to YouTube and see some of the experiments and, and hear about this. I mean, it's, it's common knowledge. And then the 12 steps, I've got those listed here in your notes, right? The first one, we, were, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. In some sense, that's true for an unbeliever, right? But in another sense, I mean, are we really, I mean, if this is alcohol in here, it's not. I know some of you think it might be, but it's not. Not anymore. Thank the Lord. I've been sober um, since 95, so I guess that's 22 years. Praise God. And it led me into this, and I have background with all this. I used to go to meetings and, and et cetera, et cetera. But um, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. You know, am I really powerless over alcohol? I mean, it's like the alcohol's going, ah, it's got power over me. It's going to force its way down my throat. I mean, it's already the victim thing. I get really animated and aggravated with this. Um, you know, we admitted we're powerless. So we're already in the first step kind of pointing to a victim mentality right here. And, you know, alcoholics love it. I mean, it's your fault they're drinking. It's the way you raised them. It's the way you treated them. It's a harsh word you said to them. It's this, it's that. So, you know, let's just make them powerless over alcohol and their lives are unmanageable. That, that part's true. Then the second step came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, what is that power? It's not defined. It's just got to be a power greater than me. Well, there's a lot of powers greater than me. And then could restore me to sanity? Is that really what I want? I want to be sane? I want to be the old Mark? I want to be recovered? That's the recovery idea. I mean, I need a power that's greater than all powers to to. Res- to transform me into Christ-likeness, not restore me to sanity. So their idea is you're going back to being a good person because you were a good person when you were a baby, and you just got to be, I guess, a, a bad or deceived person with alcohol, but you're going to go back to being a sane person because you're acting in, you hear that insane a lot, the insanity of addiction. You're doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. That's what you hear in that. Then the third step made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And if you think about it, um, I mean, it's, it's more of an Arminian teaching here or to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, the God as we understand him. So in some sense, that's okay. I mean, we're learning about God. The girls of Vision of Hope are learning to understand who God is, but it's also the definition of idolatry. If I make God into the image that I understand, then I'm really, who's God? If I'm choosing my higher power, who's the higher power? It's me. If I can choose my higher power, I'm the higher power. So it's idolatry right there in the, in the description. So I just don't like the words, you know, maybe that's the author part of me. I've written 20 books and it's, I guess it's a hobby. Um, but I do, I do love words, and you know, and I can just—I don't know. This just bugs, bugs me going through this. Okay, I'll try to get over it. Get over yourself, Mark. All right. Step four: made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So, I mean, I, I just—I don't even know where to go with this. Are you, you see? Are you seeing through this or not? I mean, I hope. I mean, it's, it's, it's so appealing. It's just so broad and general. And it's good to do some of this, to make a searching 
uh, and fearless. Wow, I'm in fearless moral inventory. But it's not a sin, it's a disease. So what's the fear? I mean, you know, it's not a sin. So they're making a searching, fearless moral inventory. And, and we all need to do that. But we do that for the point of confession and repentance and trusting in Christ. Then step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. So that sounds pretty good. God, ourselves, and another human being. I could pick the homeless guy on the street and just go up to him, I guess, and tell him the exact nature of my wrongs. Um, You know, whoever I want. All right, I'll I'll try to be more positive. Number six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Okay, I can't be positive on this one. Because God isn't wanting to remove all my spiritual defects. I mean, he's wanting to remove all my sin, you know, in the sense of I am justified. But really, sanctification is the process of continual growth in Christ. And guess what? I have sin. So he's not trying to to make me a perfect person, removing my defects of character. In fact, that's really a wrong way to pray, I think. God knows I'm a sinner and that sin keeps me on my knees asking for his help, his grace, his mercy, his ability to walk out my salvation with fear and trembling that I might become more like Christ. So it's really a wrong idea that he's just going to take all the bad out of me. I mean, the bad is going to be in me until I die. I hate to tell you that. I know you thought I walked on water at times, but um, but that's going to be in us. And, and CR talks about that too, which CR embraces all of this. This is another problem, but you know, boy, I tell you what, I'm wound up. I'm, I'm Mr. Negative right now. Don't hang out with me right now. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. I'm just, I, you know, I try to be a grace giver. I really do. <laughs> but uh, anyway, need to be a truth teller here. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So, again, removing our shortcomings sounds good. I mean, in some of these, you could say, well, it sounds good. But I know the context, and I've been to these meetings, and I know how they're teaching this. If you haven't been to an AA meeting, you ought to go to a few of them. You know, go and listen. Just just pay attention. You'll hear it. You'll see the attitude. It's a very... um, I mean, don't go and believe it, but it's, you know, it's something to go and and listen to. So he's just going to take everything bad from me. And step eight, made a list of all persons we'd harmed. Nothing wrong there. See, I can be positive. And became willing to make amends to them all. So am I going to make amends? I'm going to, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to repent. I'm just going to make amends. I'm going to somehow, you know, make it right with them. And, And I think it should just say, you know, confess and ask for forgiveness, but make amends is a more general way to say that. And then nine, step nine, made direct amends of such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So you, you have a judgment call of people who really don't make good decisions at this point in their sobriety, but you make direct amends except with people that you might hurt them further. And there's some wisdom to that. That's why you need biblical counseling. You need a pastor or somebody in your church, a trusted Christian friend, helping you walk through this stuff. Some of this is not bad to do. 
And then verse 10, I just think it doesn't go far enough. Verse 10, continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So more personal inventory. You know, you take personal inventory, but you take it compared to the word of God. This is my standard. So my personal, so in my devotions, hopefully in your devotions, we're reading this and we're going, wow, this is the doctrine I need to change I need to correct in this way, and I need to start doing the right things. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16. I, I love the way that, that whole passage lays out there. But the Bible's my standard. They don't have the Bible as their standard. So they're taking personal inventory just based on what they think is right and wrong, not what God says is right and wrong. Because the Bible's not a book mentioned, or, and, and the big book doesn't mention it in a, in a good way, doesn't even mention God. It mentions, you know, a, a light and, and any power, any, any God will do. Uh, but <clears throat> just to in, encourage you, um, use the word of God here, and they're not pointing to that. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Conscious contact with God as we understood him. You know what would help is if I was clicking. Wow, I got 11 clicks to make because I'm on step 11. There we go. I hope you got all those. And then uh, sought, <laughs> sought through prayer and meditation. Isn't that interesting? It's right in there. To improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I mean, that's probably my favorite step of the 12 of them. But we, we don't just pray and meditate in conscious contact with God. I mean, that's yoga. That's, you know, new agey. That's, that's, it's the word of God. This is my conscious contact with, with God. He's revealed himself, special revelation. So they left out the Bible on that as though you can have a relationship with God without Jesus, without the word. And then step 12, here we go. Drum roll. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Now, I love that because it's such a lie. <laughs> I mean, I don't love it because it's a lie, but it's so clear to me. When they first did the 12 steps, um, they didn't have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. The Bill W., his, his spiritual awakening was not a result of the 12 steps. He was in a hospital bed. He saw this great light that visited him. And he said that was when he got serious and sober and had his spiritual awakening. In a hospital, he was on a lot of drugs, by the way, too. Can give you one of those spiritual awakenings if you'll let it. You gotta be careful. But I love the lie here of having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Not a result of the Holy Spirit, but Bill W. didn't have a, have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, yet he's the founder. So right there, it's just a, a flat-out blatant lie if you understand and read about Bill Wilson's life. It's really sad. I mean, I, I believe he's in hell. I don't believe he was a Christian. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, I actually like the idea of carrying the message because we have a message to carry too, don't we, to all the world called the gospel. And, but we're carrying it to sinners. 
who need a savior, not to alcoholics who have a disease. They don't need, you don't need Jesus for a disease. I mean, he can heal diseases, but you don't need him for that. I mean, a lot of people have diseases, they don't need Jesus, but you need Jesus for sin. And, and we've got to keep it right there. So they carry it, they, they promote service, which I like. I mean, there's some things that AA is doing that is really great. <clears throat> but then there's these principles, these doctrines that I think are very uh, harmful if you practice and believe these things. Now, in your, on the slide, newcomers are, are not asked to accept or follow the 12 steps in their entirety if they feel unwilling or unable to do so. So how about that? You don't have to accept or follow these steps if you don't want to. We believe this is a way to sobriety because that's what Bill W. did is work these 12 steps. Oh, no, wait a minute. He didn't do that after all. But they, you know, so it, again, it's shame-free. It's not, you know, there's no commands. It's a fellowship. They use a lot of words that are very friendly, very welcoming words. It's very loving in the worldly sense of love but it's devoid of truth they will usually be asked to keep an open mind to attend this talking about newcomers to attend meetings at which recovered alcoholics describe their personal experiences in achieving sobriety and to read AA literature describing interpreting the AA program so at every meeting you go they read the 12 steps they read the 12 promises I don't know if you know they had the promises I didn't I don't think I put them in here did I no but you can look them up online. <clears throat> but they read that at the start of the meeting, then they usually open with like a devotion, somebody reads something, and then they begin to make comments about it, and people just take turns and share their hope and their experience. You're not allowed to give somebody counsel or do cross-talking. That's why I wrote a book called Cross-Talking, because you're not allowed to do that in AA, but you're allowed to do that in local church. And, um, you know, and we want to talk about the cross anyway. So it's kind of play on words like Switchfoot does. Um, any Switchfoot fans in here? Anybody at my Switchfoot where I confess that I like Switchfoot? Anybody? No? Oh, man. I didn't have to confess it in here. Nobody knew. What a dummy. I confessed it. At least Fitzpatrick said, you like Switchfoot? I was like, you're in my workshop. I like Switchfoot. And, um, and it's a confession of mine. I'm, I think I'm addicted the switch foot. You can pray for me. But they use modern day parables. I like how they do that. I don't know if you're familiar, but they, they, they talk about these things. And so if you have ears to hear, you hear what the Spirit's saying. Well, AA uses a lot of words that are kind of double, double, you know, double-minded kind of things. You know, let go and let God. And just, just they have little pithy pithy sayings and just little little things like that. It's very attractive, very bland, very general. You can apply it to a lot of things and so you just have to be very careful but that's what goes on in the meetings as they're sharing those things and people um, share their experience and their hope with one another and so you walk out of there feeling pretty good and it's supposed to help you to stay sober. They also have a speaker meetings where someone with sobriety at least a year gets up and shares their testimony, well, they don't call it a testimony, but their, you know, life story. And then you have uh, other meetings, which are big book studies, where they study the big book, which the big book is the 12-step book, the, the, the 
of Alcoholics Anonymous that that's it's not the Bible, it's not a Bible study, but they have a big book study. So they do a lot of things that churches do. They have this just a very different doctrine in what they're prescribing. They really believe man is good with a lot of this. I hope that you can see that. I'm not emphasizing some of the truths there, but I'm hoping that you can see that uh, in this. So... Uh, So the, the big thing to understand is that they think it's a progressive, incurable, fatal disease. What if I told you you have a progressive, incurable, there's no cure, it's only going to get worse is what progressive means, D- fatal, it's going to kill you, disease. Where's the hope there, huh? So that's what people have to accept. They have to buy into that in order to, to get sober, according to their teaching. You ever, every day, if you go to an AA meeting, you say, hi, I'm Mark. I'm an alcoholic. That's how you have to, and they say, hi, Mark. Yeah, someone's been to a meeting here, I think. But it, we'll keep it anonymous. <laughs> I love having fun with this. Um, <clears throat> That progressive, incurable, fatal disease. Now, what would we say in, in answer to that? We have a sinful heart, but, but we have an answer for that, right? God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new nature with the Holy Spirit in us. I don't have to say I'm Mark and I'm an alcoholic. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new identity. That's not who I was. Such were some of you, but you were washed, etc. You know, and, and yeah, I'm going to die this life. Big deal. I'm going to be in heaven with God. You know? So the fear and, the, and just all this stuff, it just, it really, I think it binds a lot of people's consciences. And you want to be careful when you're counseling not to point people to 12-step stuff because where's the hope? When I read that, I always think, where's the beef? I don't know if any of you remember that commercial. Where's the beef? Yeah. Oh, man. See, this is what happens when you do four. This is my fourth out of five workshops. I'm, I'm a live wire right now. I could just, I could come unhinged any minute here. <clears throat> if not already there, right? Hopefully my wife's not watching. You came unhinged in that fourth one, honey. Um, now let's analyze Celebrate Recovery. Oh, good. Let's make more friends, right? So the 12-step people are mad. Now the CR people are going to be mad at me. I was asked a long time ago, if I, a few years ago, if I would go to a CR thing and be a speaker. And the guy was calling me, kind of had a relationship with them, was working, I guess, with Rick Warren and others. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll come. I'll try not. I won't bash it but I'm just gonna present what God says and truth and some of the things I say are gonna be different than what you guys teach. And I never heard back from them, but, um, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it was fine. I mean, I've done some things like that where if they'll have me, I'll teach, but I'm not gonna change, you know, what I believe or change the message. But uh, CR created 1991. Uh, Rick Warren, and I forget the other guy's name. Somebody know his name? John Baker. There it is. 
those two guys kind of constructed it, and their heart was to, to make a biblical program, or at least Christianized program. Uh, many of Celebrate Recovery's teachings are constructed from eisegesis rather than exegesis, so they mis- misuse scripture, or they sprinkle scripture on top of what they already believe. That's kind of how I think about that. Uh, and they, they use the 12 steps. Why get rid of a good thing, right? By the way, AA has less than a 6% effectiveness rate. There were two studies done in the late 80s that analyzed AA for sobriety, for the very goal, and they found less than 6% of the people that, that were um, in these two experiments, less than 6% stayed sober for 18 months. Less than 6%. So don't buy that AA is the only way that works and da 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 it, It's not true. It's just the, the way that people talk about. And there's a lot in AA that's just theory. It's, it's really a belief. You're believing that it works. <clears throat> So they use the 12 steps and then they have eight principles that they say come from the Beatitudes and the acronym spells recovery. So recovery is an eight letter word. Isn't that fun? Then uh, their first principle, realize I'm not God. (laughs) I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. You know, it's fun at the dinner table I'm kind of a kooky dad, I guess, but at the dinner table, we read through all these, you know, with my kids, and I just wanted my kids to, to tell me what they thought, and, you know, of course, they know where I'm coming from, but they are like, well, dad, it's, you know, it's really interesting to do that, so, you know, your kids give you good feedback, and, they're, and they dissect it and analyze it well, and uh, my daughter just did a great job with this, and we, we uh, the one that wants to drive... But she did a great job with this. Uh, she's learning new habits and driving, but she's not there yet. And I, you know, we might not make it to 17. I don't know the way she drives. She's just focused. And you got to pan out, baby. Look left, look right. There are other people in the universe, and they're driving on this road. But anyway, she did well, and we, we talked about this. Uh, and she said, you know, the, the, to do the wrong thing. You know, to do the wrong thing. Well, is that sin? To do the right, to do the wrong thing? They're kind of hinting at it. And my life's unmanageable. So they're really trying to just take step one and, and redo it. And then their verse for that is given there in the uh, Good News translation. Happy are those who know that they are spiritually poor. And there's a great article by, uh, I think it's Eric Davis and Matt Mumma. M-U-M-M-A is called an analysis of Celebrate Recovery and they did a blog on it and there's information out there but they really break it down and help you to see it in more detail than we can go in here. Uh, but you know, that's just eisegesis. To, they're, they're, they're sprinkling these beatitude verses on top of what they already believe. They're just basically regurgitating the 12 steps and condensing it into eight recovery steps and then the recovery steps are, you know, matched up with a beatitude. One of them is not, as you'll see in a second. Second step, the E. First one was the R, now it's the E. Earnestly believe God exists. 
that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. I mean, it just sounds really, we just read the 12 steps. It sounds a lot like step two. Happier those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know where they got the leap there, but somehow they think that that's connected. Then the third step is consciously choose to commit all my life, not part of it, but all of it, and will to Christ's care and control. Which, you know, sounds pretty good. It's like step three. Happy are the meek. Matthew 5, 5. And then four, openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and someone I trust. Happy are the pure in heart. Matthew 5, 8. This is from steps four and five. Then their fifth celebrate recovery principle voluntarily submit to any and all changes God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. From step six and seven, that character defect stuff. And again, this is where my daughter said, you know, God isn't wanting to remove our character defects. And I said, that's right. I mean, he removes our sin, but we have our struggle with our flesh. He's replacing it in time but it still gives us opportunity to depend on him. And the happier are those who, whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Matthew 5, 6. I almost hate reading the, the good news translations. It doesn't even sound like the Bible to me. I like the blessed of the poor in spirit for there's the kingdom of heaven. But anyway, I'm just old fashioned that way, I guess. And then step six, evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for harm I've done to others when possible, except when to do so would harm them or others. Step eight and nine, happy the merciful, happy are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9. Then the seventh celebrate recovery principle doesn't have a corresponding beatitude, but it says reserve a daily time with God for self-examination. Bible reading and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. So, I mean, at least they put the Bible in there. Praise the Lord for that. And I don't want to be totally critical, but you can just see my, my job here is to critically analyze this. So that's why I'm doing it for you. Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. And, and again, it's good. We want to take the good news to others, the gospel. Happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. Some of the celebrate theology clashes with sound Christian doctrine. I want to just share a few of those with you. First of all, their terminology psychologized. So when we need to use we need to use God's word to describe behavior. We've already talked about that, but their terminology would be very psychologized when you read their leaders. Guides. The thing about Celebrate Recovery, their packaging, their marketing is so good. The way it's user-friendly, it's really, really well done in, in that sense. But again, the teaching, they teach you you have to love yourself in, other to, in order to love others. So I got to... Mm, 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 love me before I can love any of y'all, Right? All of y'all, that's right. I didn't love myself enough. Mm, all of y'all, there we go. Oh, how, how disgusting, right? Self-love is our problem. That's the addict's problem, not you gotta love yourself more. Then they teach you gotta forgive yourself. 
as a gate to love and forgive others. You gotta forgive yourself. You know, Mark, I forgive you. I forgive you, Mark. I, I thank you for that. I, I, you know, I mean, it's just crazy to me. Forgiveness is a transaction between two entities, two separate entities, God and man. I need God's forgiveness. I don't need my own forgiveness. Me, myself, and I, I'm not split into two entities. I'm one person. Now, I know what they're saying. You beat yourself up over things, and I, and I get that. But that's different than saying forgiveness. We're teaching forgiving yourself, and it's wrong uh, in every way. It's wrong with a capital R. Okay. Just make sure you're listening. Then number three, suffering is not God's will. That's what they teach in, in CR. It's as though God is a bystander. He, a bystander. he is unsovereign. He's detached. He can't really do anything. His hands are tied. And I want to teach that suffering is God's will. It's what he uses to glorify himself. He's redemptive in it, and he makes us, changes us into Christ, makes us depend on him. And then CR's view of salvation is that man chooses God and denies God's sovereign, it denies God's sovereign grace in sinner's salvation. Humanity has something, we're not entirely dead in sin, so there's something good in us that reaches up and chooses God rather than we're dead in sin. I mean, I don't know about you, but I haven't been to a funeral where a dead person reached up and with their own strength chose something, Right? Dead people are dead. They don't do much when they're dead. They're dead. They don't reach for God. <clears throat> CR also teaches man must forgive God. It's on page 192 of the leaders, God. I'm not making it up. And they even say, yes, God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's blasphemy from, you know, from the pit of hell. You never have to forgive God. So a lot of their teachings to me bring God down more to our level or really even beneath us where we're choosing our higher power. We're in control. It's just wrong with a capital R. There you go. Christ is the higher power they're, they're pushing, but even that language, higher power, he's the highest power. He's the supreme. He's the one true God. So even that language isn't my favorite. CR also defines man by his addictions, his hurts, hangups, and habits. That's how they're defined, and his culpability to self-actualization. So he needs to be self-actualized. Again, a psychological term to, to be uh, perfected. <clears throat> God defines man as a worshiper made in God's image, an image bearer. And then CR, those of you who have a CR program are probably, you know, I don't know what you're thinking right now. But, um, you know, blame, I blame Ed Welch. But, um, and my parents. Um, and my dog. I don't have a dog, but if I did, I would blame him. Uh, another thing to be careful CR, lack of self-esteem is the root of all sin from which other negative behaviors arrive. So their big thing is you lack self-esteem, you lack self-love. And because of that, that now springs and gives rise to other negative problems in your life. So you gotta fix that first. You gotta love yourself. Give yourself a big hug. And then number nine, indirectly promotes CR as a replacement for the local church. They don't say it. AA kind of pushes it a little more than CR, 
But they do say it in their leader's guide that if you're not ready for church, that's your decision, it's okay. Just come to our CR meeting. Well, what are you saying when you say that? You're basically saying, forget the church, come to our CR meeting until you're ready. And I, and I get it, maybe until you're ready, you know, but I, I just don't like that. The local church is the answer. And it has been the answer since Jesus said, uh, you know, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It hasn't changed. It's the local church, the local church, the local church. So be careful with all of this stuff that they espouse. Now, I knew I'd run out of time and I knew it'd be a little cranky. But I listed for you, Roman numeral four, the myths of addiction. Let's click through that. The myths of addiction. Do you have that in your notes? You see that? So you have 10 of those. Those actually come from, I just want to explain it. They come from Lance Dodes. He's a secular psychiatrist. He wrote a book called The Heart of Addiction. Isn't that funny? I wrote a book called The Heart of Addiction. But his heart of addiction is wrong. Not because I, you know, not because of me, but it's just unbiblical. He thinks addiction all comes from anger. Um, but he lists in there eight, uh, 10 myths that are really, really good to think about. Things like, you know, do people have an addictive personality? Are certain things addictive and certain things aren't? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, that, that cell phone. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's, there's an addiction property there. It can't be my heart that wants that thing. But I'm telling you, I like to check scores. I like to, I mean, I'm, I'm waste, time wasting right here on this thing, you know? But he, he addresses that. Is, does this have addictive properties? Well, it's my, it's my heart, but everything does, you know? Everything that, that we find pleasure in. So I like that. What he, I put his myth on the left. In the right-hand column, I put a biblical truth and just my response so that you have those. There are books listed at the end that critique the self-help movement. Stanton Peel, who's an unbeliever. I love getting books from unbelievers that do that. Why it doesn't make sense to call addiction a disease. He's not a Christian. I've actually emailed him and, and uh, tried to connect with him. but really appreciate his stuff. I'd love to see him come to know the Lord if he doesn't. Then there's a book called The Useful Lie by William Playfair. It's excellent. A book by a friend of mine who passed away. I don't even know if you can get it anymore, but I, th I think you can. Where Sin Abounds, Does Grace Abound More? He, he takes apart uh, 12 steps and then I do in Heart of Addiction. So <clears throat> I would encourage you to get some of that, do some more research. But I think after this, surely you kind of see some of the problems here that, that we have Colossians 2.8 is our warning and how we'll end. I know we're over time. I'll end it here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And, and takes you captive means puts you in handcuffs. If you've ever been in handcuffs, it's a pretty powerless place to be. You talk about powerlessness, being in handcuffs. See to it no one takes you, puts you in handcuffs or takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Amen? Let's pray and we'll dismiss. Lord, we thank you that again, even though many of these programs are popular, two million people go to AA meetings and they're all over the place, even in churches, that Lord, uh, we would be a people faithful to promote the message of the gospel and that Christ not only 
forgives sinners and redeems them, but he transforms them and makes them into your likeness and image in time. And we pray that, Lord, we be patient with those that believe these lies, just as, as I confess I used to believe them. Lord, thank you that you've opened my eyes to truth. And we know that that comes as we study, so help us to be faithful to study your word and, and to ask your spirit to change our understanding and thinking. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll see you tonight. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.